Waldy and Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's psychodrama about art. If you heard last week's podcast, you'll know exactly why we've had to rename it. It was like a cage fight on here between me, Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, the handsomest and most intelligent man in art history. Bendy, so we've really turned over a new leaf, haven't we? We're going to be really nice to each other on this podcast today, aren't we? Well, you've already started by being far too nice to me. Um, but I, as I always like to remind you now, I am the mere studio assistant to your master. I am the Boltraffio to your Leonardo. God, you're already disagreeing. It's unbelievable. Oh, well, on we go. Now, as it happens, there's lots of special stuff coming up here because later in the podcast, we're going to be handing out the prestigious Waldy and Bendy Award for the worst painter of children in art. There are plenty of bad ones, but who's the very worst? Stay tuned. Also in the show, I'll be getting in touch with my lockdown fatness. Am I obese now or not? That's the question. But the big news this week, the really big news, is that our museums are about to reopen. After all these months of closure, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Bendy, that's a good feeling, isn't it? I think it's a good feeling. I'm tempted to say it's all right for you, Weldy, down there in London. I mean, you've got the, the pick of everything you want to see. But for those of us still stuck in lockdown parts, I'm in Scotland and travelling is obviously difficult at the moment. I'm not sure about it. I think you, you're getting all the treats and, and we're still having to lump it. But presumably, even up north there, there are plans afoot to reopen, you know, your great National Gallery in Scotland, etc. Um, not that I've heard, actually. So it's just a London thing. Well, I think it's it's English museums first, but we, we might come on to whether it's going to be actually worth it. I mean, uh, the cost of, of the museums opening the door at the moment is going to be prohibitive, it seems to me, and I'm not sure how long they can make it last. Oh dear, so dark stuff ahead. Now, actually, I gather you managed to uh, to get the inside line on all this because uh, you've been talking to the director of the National Gallery, is that right? I did an interview with him just after he uh, announced the various reopening measures, and I think um, in media terms, we would portentously call this his first broadcast interview after the announcement was made. So uh, I asked him some of the details about how you reopen a National Gallery. Gabriele, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, first of all, I, I gather you had the virus. Are you fully recovered now? Uh, yes, no, um, no, no, no sympathy, please. I had it um, at the end of March. It was very uh, brief. I was in bed for a couple of days, but the whole family got it. So um, it... it uh, it, it lasted, I guess, you know, the, the symptoms um, lasted several weeks, but uh, we were over the worst within a few days. And as director of the National Gallery at a time of, of national crisis like this, you have quite a position of responsibility, uh, uh, not dissimilar to Kenneth Clark and the decisions he had to make during the war. Di did you feel immediately that you must reopen the gallery? Uh, it's a grand comparison uh, with Kenneth Clark and the war years. It, there, there are some similarities, you know, the gallery, um, you know, it, it was, was in a sense uh, um, in the war years, you know, it wasn't holding the collection for people to see. Uh, here, instead of um, you know, moving collection out of the building, we were obliged to shut the doors and people couldn't come in. But, you know, our gallery is all about people uh, coming through the doors and enjoying it and talking about it and learning about it. Um, it, it's very much a gallery where the public is um, a central element to it. Um, you know, I, I always go back to, 
you know, the rules for visiting the National Gallery from 1824, which say that the National Gallery is for the use of the public, for the use of the public. So uh, it's there for people to use as they think uh, fit. Um, so we were very keen to, uh, to, to, to return to that situation. Um, the comparison with the Second World War is, is, is relevant because, you know, we, we felt the weight of sort of moral responsibility of trying to, uh, of trying to be part of London's cultural life, of the country's cultural life, and reopen as soon as we, as we could. Uh, admittedly, it's a bit easier for us than it is for other museums. You know, we are essentially about pictures on the wall and large spaces in between. So from that point of view, it's perhaps a little bit more straightforward. But um, no, I have to say we were keen to get the gallery open as soon as we could. And today, as we're recording this, you've announced a series of measures that will help make that possible. So you people need to book online. There'll be uh, reduced opening times. And when people are inside, they'll have to be two meters apart from each other. Uh, and you're advising people to wear masks. Um, I was just looking at you that the Royal Academy has said masks have to be worn, but you're, you're only advising, is that right? Yeah, I mean, we didn't want to do something that was you know, radically different from um, government advice. So it's a recommendation that visitors should wear um, a face covering. Certainly when the staff are in the public areas of the building, we'll be wearing um, a face covering too. And I think, you know, as the first uh, you know, big museum to open, I think what's really important right from the start is to engender uh, confidence in the visiting public that you can come and visit the gallery safely. Are you going to have a little line in the gift shop of uh, masks, art-inspired masks? Our producer, Taya, has uh, suggested Munch's The Scream. <laughs> you may well find something like that when you come to the shop, when we reopen. Now, I presume you're going to have to have a limit on the number of people you can have in, in a day. Well, I mean, social distancing, of course, does uh, lead to limited numbers. Um, so, so there will be a reduced number of visitors in the gallery. But I'm not sure exactly how many that, that will be. It will partly depend on what the demand is. And right now, we don't know what the demand is. It may be very, very slow. Um, you know, we're very conscious that you know, our tourist audience is, is not around right now. Um, a lot of our older visitors, and you know, we depend quite heavily on older visitors, um, they, they tend to come um, in quite large numbers to the National Gallery. Uh, a lot of them will not be uh, coming into town, a lot of them will be reluctant to go on public transport. So it, it remains to be seen how, how it works out. You must have a kind of, technically somewhere there must be a limit, an upper ceiling. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suspect we'll be looking at, you know, something in the region of, you know, a fifth to a quarter of, um, of the kind of normal uh, that we get, at least to begin with. That may expand uh, a bit as people become more, uh, more confident and, um, you know, the, 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 the shops and the restaurants and so on become uh, visible around us. So, so that may grow. We can, we can flex. Okay. So you normally get about 13,000 visitors a day. So... So quite a reduction. And, and inevitably that leads on to the perhaps the most unsatisfactory question about all this is, is the hit on your finances. I, I presume it's something you've got to think really hard about because your, your funding model these days requires you to raise half of your income yourself. That's about just under 20 million a year, I think, isn't it? So, I mean, how can you do that if you've only got up to a quarter of your usual visitors? Well, Bender, I think you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, that's the real challenge as we look ahead. I mean, the model for our big national institutions um, depends on large numbers of visitors coming through. Uh, and if those visitors are not there, 
then you're not getting uh, the income that you need from your uh, from your restaurants and your bookshops and you know, the event hire businesses that we're all uh, doing. So you know there is a real concern. And this year alone, of course, you know we've lost three months of, uh, of uh, self-generated income, and it's going to be a very very slow pickup. I'm pretty confident about that. And it's not just this year; it's also you know what happens next year. And how can our museums, and we're, in a sense, we're the big boys, but you know, how can our museums be uh, sustainable into the future? It's not just a question of you know, surviving the next six months. It is much more about how do you plan uh, for the future? You, know, you need to start thinking about your uh, exhibitions uh, you know, a couple of years in advance, three years in advance. Uh, you need to start thinking of what kind of uh, staffing you require to, uh, to carry out your programs and so on. So we need a longer term perspective. Uh, and sustainability is a big uh, question for us now. So that's what we're talking to the government about. And how receptive are they? I mean, we've heard a lot from DCMS about uh, we're listening, uh, but not not much else. I mean, uh, the, and the contrast with other countries, I mean, everybody always talks about Germany, but the, the German cultural support package has been quite significant. We, we've had nothing like that in the UK. Do you, do you think they're listening? And the German response has been pretty impressive, actually. Um, I, I have no doubt that um, DCMS and the government are uh, listening, and I understand perfectly there are many demands on them right now. Uh, we see ourselves very much as part of the uh, recovery. Um, that's partly to do with you know, people's well-being after a very difficult uh, three-month uh, lockdown. People, a lot of people are feeling pretty miserable and uh, wretched, I'd say. Um, but also, of course, we're important in terms of um, attracting visitors to the city and to the country. Um, you know, we play a very important role in, in, in the sort of um, cultural prestige of the UK. So I think we play a, a, an important role. And, um, you know, we certainly hope that the government has been uh, listening and will, will respond uh, generously uh, as the situation demands. Mm. I heard earlier on your your press conference about the reopening, and I thought it was interesting that you you weren't able to rule out reintroducing entry charges i mean nobody wants to see that no the, the issue is much bigger than that it's um you know what, what do we want our institutions to be what kind of relationship do we want them to have with the public you know to what extent do we want uh the you know the, 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 the people of this country to you know feel ownership of their cultural institutions and you know we've done remarkably well in britain um in in making uh, our museums, places which people go to frequently, um, the sense that these are institutions that belong to the people is much stronger here. I've worked for many years in, in Spain, for example, and that sensation was never um, anywhere like as strong as it is here. Um, so that's something very valuable. The other thing is, you know, to what extent do you want your museums to actually be part of the fabric of life? Um, you, you certainly make it more difficult if you introduce charging um, if you keep it free, then it's, it's possible for somebody like me who grew up in London, you know, for, as a child uh, coming to see the collection. The, the National Gallery is part of many people's personal history, um, as is, you know, the BNA or the Natural History Museum. So that, that's a tradition that we, 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 we risk um, at our peril. Um, and, you know, but it, 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 it requires continued support from government. And, um, you know, for the moment, um, government and indeed all the parties are uh, strongly in favour of free entry, and that's a good thing. 
So there we are. Fascinating stuff, Bendy. Um, how very, very interesting. Now, obviously, the, the big takeaway there at the end is, is this whole business of possible museum charges. Um, I mean, he wasn't 100% clear about it, was it? I mean, he obviously doesn't want it to happen, but that doesn't mean it ain't going to happen, does it? Well, the National Gallery, as far as I know, has never had entry charges. And what I found was really interesting that despite the National Gallery never having those charges, even Gabriele Finaldi couldn't rule out their imposition. And it seems to me, and I think it's quite clever, actually, that there's a bit of a, a political tussle going on here, is that these museums desperately, desperately need the government to put its hand in its pocket to make this reopening sustainable. And reimposing entry charges is, I suppose, their only lever, isn't it? Uh, because even this current uh, Boris Johnson-led government isn't going to want to reintroduce uh, entry fees for our national museums. Uh, and I just hope, I hope that uh, DCMS and the UK government listen. Um, at the moment, I'm not sure I'm very optimistic they will. So, so you reckon it's politics on the, on the part of our museum directors to, to keep stressing this? It's a strategy? Well, I suppose they had two options, really. As Gabrielle said, there's absolutely no doubt that this that opening under lockdown or semi-lockdown conditions is not sustainable. So half the National Gallery's income is self-generated. It's about 20 million quid a year. I looked at some of the numbers. So income from exhibitions, 4.1 million last year. Trading activities, that's shops and cafes and venue hire, 7.5 million last year. Now, at the National Gallery, um, exhibitions are going to be very limited. All the cafes are closed except for one which is doing a limited takeaway option. The shops are going to have a limited range um, and there's no venue hire options. So already, on top of their three-month loss he's mentioned, um, they're, down, they're going to be down, I think, you know, or almost £10 million to do this. Uh, they don't run much of a surplus. Now, the National Gallery is quite well off compared to most other national museums. But doing a year of this, of only having... Uh, I worked out from what he said about a fifth of the usual limit of 2,600 visitors a day is just not sustainable. And, and it's not fair to ask the National Gallery to just fork out money from its reserves in order to do this. So I suppose that they had two options. One was to either say to the government, we're not reopening until you put your hand in your pocket to cover these costs, or to say, well, we might reintroduce entry charges unless you cover these costs. Um, I I think I might have been a bit more gung-ho and said collectively, we're not opening until you give us some more money. Uh, but that's, that's a difficult judgment to make. Mm. See, I've, I've marched on big protest things about museum entry. I remember when the VNA did that appalling scheme for um, so-called voluntary entry fee, where you had sort of paramilitaries at the door basically forcing you to put your hand in your pocket, even though it was supposed to be voluntary. Mm. A bit like the British Museum is doing at the moment. Not a very pleasant experience. Um, so I'm totally for it and i'm like like gabrielli himself you know I, when i was a kid I, I i like nothing better than to pop into the national gallery but is it sustainable i mean I, I it is the the thing that no one dares talk about and yet in a way you know don't we have to start considering this i mean it, because museums are such a difficult thing to run they cost so much money and as as gabrielli said in the interview a large percentage of the people that go to the national gallery are tourists I just think that we can't, as I keep saying to you, we can't, there's no such thing as a free lunch. We can't just keep expecting these wonderful places to stay open for us when we're not supporting them from the other side. Perhaps some kind of system where tourists pay, but if you're, uh, if you're from the UK, you can flash a card at them that, that lets you in for free or for a pound, you know. Perhaps we need to start considering that. Um, I, I hate to say it, don't for God's sake think it's something I support or want to happen, 
but it may have reached the point where we need to say the unsayable. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, in, in light of all things Brexit? I mean, he admitted in the interview that 70% now of the National Gallery's visitors are from overseas. Now, it is wonderful to have a National Gallery in the UK which attracts all these visitors, but there must come a point where we wonder to what extent the UK taxpayer is obliged to fork out for overseas visitors to get in for free. Because when I went to the Louvre, I didn't get in for free last time. And I, I That's my point. That. That's exactly yeah. my point. So, so I don't, but whether there's an easy mechanism to do it, because of course we don't really want to impose ID cards just so we can get into our museums for free, I don't know. But I suspect what's interesting, I think, about this business of, of making people now during the lockdown book a ticket in advance online is that you're now erecting, if you like, the, the mechanism by which you can allow people to come in for free or to charge a bit. Uh, so, I think maybe maybe we will have to look at that. It's it's very unpalatable, but given the scale of you know the economic recession and so on coming, we may have to do it. Mm, scary times. Perhaps there will be scary solutions. I've heard some funny stories about the things that the museums have had to get ready. I mean, he didn't really go into much detail of talking to you, but there's there's a great story about umbrellas. Apparently, um, there was a thing about if it's raining, what do these visitors that go to the National Gallery do with their umbrellas? Because the cloakrooms are all closed. Mm. So are they banned from taking umbrellas in or what? And uh, there's lots of discussion and, and round round and round the houses on it. And in the end, I think that you 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 get a special plastic bag and you put your umbrella in it and take it with you, oh, which. Wow then opens up these other things of people possibly poking pictures with umbrellas you know so uh, whichever way you look it's not good personally uh, overriding all of this and bigger than anything we've said is just what a relief finally to be able to go into the national gallery again i mean i must admit my heart soars at the thought of it they have so many great things it is it is ultimately probably my favorite gallery in the world you know and so for all these little grumbles and things oh what a joy come on bring it on Uh, what about you bendy well, yes, of course. You should be. A, have you ever thought of being a trustee? Because you know, if you're a trustee of the National Gallery, they give you something called the freedom of the gallery, which means you can get in any time you like, uh, day or night. You could just knock on the door, even on Christmas Day, and they'll open up for you. I once did it. I went round with a with a trustee uh, about midnight, and it was extraordinary. Uh, what a privilege! So perhaps you perhaps you should try and be a trustee and you could go in if you want. I, I don't think they'd, they'd trust me to be a trustee. I mean, just think of the fantastic trouble I could cause if I was in there. No, I can't see that happening, Bender. I think I think you've got more chance of that than I have. But anyway, we're agreed at least that uh, it's all it's all really good news. Um, now remember, folks, uh, any, everything we talk about here can be looked up on the Sunday Times website and you can see all the pictures we're going to talk about. You can see all the information about places to go to and internet sites. And you're going to need some of that information because we're going to move on to a very interesting part of the of the show where we get to choose the very worst painter of children in art because yes 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 it's the waldy and bendy awards the waldy and bendy Yes, yes, it's the Waldy and Bendy Awards. Last week, you you may remember that Bender and I nearly came to blows deciding on who was the best painter of children. Well, this time, it's the other side of the coin. We've gone for the worst. And God knows there's plenty to choose from. Bender, Taya, the producer, and I have been uh, giving things numbers. I've come up with a short list. We scored them. And these are the shocking results. In fifth place, which is to say, basically, the best of the worst painters of children in art, is that fine Baroque Spanish painter Murillo, who is a terrible painter of children, that's for sure, but he's not the very worst. What do you think about that, Bendy? Well, (laughs) 
you've done that thing again where you draw up the shortlist and you've presented me with a number of artists I wouldn't put on. It's called Democracy Bendor. <laughs> one of your benign dictatorships. I wouldn't put Murillo on here, so I scored him as generously as I could. I can sort of see what you don't like about his, his depictions of children, and sometimes they verge on the sentimental, but I, I forgive Murillo everything for his technical brilliance. I mean, I, I can't look at a Murillo picture, even of the most sentimental uh, Christ and St. John the Baptist, and not think, you know, gosh, how did he do that? What wonderful application of paint. Does that not sway you? It doesn't sway me. I know exactly what you mean. And I am actually a fan of Murillo. I think uh, in other areas of his output, he's a, a, a fabulous painter, one of those true giants of, of Spanish art. But for some reason, when he came to kids, he went wrong. And, and he did paint the most sentimental children in the whole of the Baroque world. And these little beggar boys sitting there looking plaintive and poor, you know, they're so phony. You know that these things are painted in order to tweak everybody's heartstrings. Um, and the more he went on with it, the worse they all got, the, the less likely they became as children and, and the more sentimental it all got. And when he came to painting Christ and John the Baptist as these little urchins scuttling about the, uh, the skirts of the Virgin Mary, looking so sort of poor and Oliver Twisty. I mean, frankly, it's a disgrace. It's pure exploitative art. So uh, I, I would forgive Murillo a lot of things, but not his kids. And I think he fully deserves his fifth worst painter of children place in the uh, in the list. Well, I just can I can carry on for de defending Murillo just for a little bit longer because I know what you mean about the the later on in his his career, his his depictions of children did get a little bit overly sentimental. But at the beginning, I think they're really quite admirable. And one of the ones you sent me, you highlighted to me as an abominable example, was uh, his his so called young beggar, which is one of his first depictions of children. Um, and it, it's more accurate title is a boy delousing himself. And I don't know if you can see in the bottom right hand corner of this picture of a boy uh, sitting in a, in a sort of uh, derelict building, picking at his shirt. But in the bottom right hand corner, you can see the lice on the floor wriggling away. And they're huge things. They're beastly. And it's, you just, it's awful to imagine having to live a life like that and, and picking your clothes apart all the time. And I think he's He's literally shining a harsh light on poverty here uh, because um, Murillo himself, he was an orphan. And when he was painting pictures like this, there was a terrible demographic crisis in Castile, in Spain. And in the rural population, uh, life expectancy was no more than 30. And there was a real uh, epidemic of, of abandoned children. And, and not many artists had tackled subjects like this uh, before. And I think uh, he did a noble job of it. Well, you've, you've done a fantastic case of defending him there. I, I wasn't really aware of that um, aspect of it all. It makes me feel a little bit more forgiving. So wait, well done for springing to Murillo's defence. Uh, as I said, it was never my worst, but he was, he, he's gone up a little bit in my estimation because of your kind and thoughful and intelligent defence, Bendor, <laughs> uh, which is what I always expect of you. I expect even more of that with our next artist because who should be the second least worst painter of children in art but your great hero, Sir Joshua Reynolds. Now, I picked some of the least offensive Reynolds children for us to have a look at, but they're ghastly. Again, Reynolds could do certain things, but when it came to kids, boy, did he pile it on. Well, <laughs> I think you have to draw a distinction here between Reynolds, uh, what we might call his straight portraits of children, um, and then his, his sometimes overly sentimental, what he called his fancy pictures. Uh, to deal with the first category, I I'm not as damning as you, and I think you have to consider what came before Reynolds when he's painting children. So in British art, 
um, the temptation was to depict these people as little miniature adults in, in grown-up dress, uh, looking very stiff and as if they're about to be betrothed to someone they've never met. And, and that's quite unfair. And I think Reynolds comes along and infuses a spirit of innocence and, and childhood in his depictions of kids. And, and, and some of them, I think, are really beautiful. Now, like most British portrait artists of the 18th century, he, when he felt overwhelmed by endlessly painting people every day, he decided in his spare time to go off and paint, what, as I said, what he called fancy pictures or history pictures. And the great historian of British art of the 20th century, Ellis Waterhouse, was, was very polite about these things. And he said, for example, that Reynolds' depiction of the infant Hercules was his, quote, least disastrous foray into fancy pictures. So they did sometimes go wrong, and I agree with you. But on the whole, I, I think you're being a little bit unkind to Reynolds. I think I'm being too kind. Um, I mean, do you know what? I find I find some of them a bit creepy. You know, you had a pop at me last week for supporting um, Picasso. You, you found his art creepy. I think some of Reynolds is pretty creepy. There's one, I'm looking at it right now, right? And it, and it, and it actually argues against what you just said about him not making them little adults in his art. It's a portrait of, of a boy called John Parker and his sister, right? And they're sitting under a tree in the park and he's, they're dressed like adults. He's leaning over and he's grabbed her by the chest in a, in a manner which if it was a picture by Rubens would be a sort of love picture between two adults, right? It's absolutely suggestive of, of that as if they're going to be married next week as if he's already grabbing her. I mean, it, it, it's a ghastly picture and it, it's evidence of, um, of a sort of mental understanding of these things that is just crass, I think. Oh. I didn't see that. Uh, well, art is so subjective, isn't it? But certainly, uh, Reynolds is no Gainsborough when it comes to painting British children. But I think, again, you have to consider that how he's reacting what, to what came before. And it's true, there wasn't really a great deal of sentiment in the depiction of British sitters uh, before the middle of the 18th century. And it, and it may be that he was guilty of overreacting to that. But at the same time, uh, we have to consider that a lot of Reynolds' fancy pictures, uh, which were just left found in his studio after he died, a lot of them became extremely popular in the Victorian era, when, of course, they were taken to mean uh, different things. And when the Victorians really went overboard for, for sentiment and sympathy and pity uh, in their art. So um, I've run out of steam for defending Reynolds. Perhaps you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I'll tell you, let, let the viewers decide. They can have a look at the picture of John Parker and his sister uh, and tell us what they think. Um, but that was brave and typical of you. Just shows what a man you are, Bendor, to defend Joshua Reynolds that, that heartily. Anyway, I don't think um, there's going to be much defence needed for the next one, because the third least worst painter of children in our list is that terrible French Rococo painter, Francois Boucher. Now, he was bad with women and he was even worse with children, right? I think I agree. I mean, the Rococo period generally wasn't good for the depiction of children. They were either portrayed as fat pooty or fat pooty flopping around in the sky. <laughs> the, one of the ones you sent me was, I think, called Boy with a Bagpipe and a Dog. And it's a little kid sort of um, half undressed, uh, blowing merrily into a bagpipe um, to the delights of a little dog. And you just know, you just know that that's like sitting in the most torturous music class for your kid. Um, um, learning the bagpipes and wishing you'd never bought them the bagpipes and it must be it's an awful picture isn't it it is awful absolutely awful I've, i think i think i agree with you that it's the most awful of his bush of bushy's children pictures but god there's a lot to choose from i mean there are these allegories of the gods as well with these fat and ghastly poor little cherubs trying to trying to have these fearful expressions on their faces and things i mean he just went wrong on every level and and, and 
you know, it's, it's the same with, with his women, with everything that Boucher touched. He was just such a crass painter. And it's a shame because he had it in his hands. You know, he, he, he had a delicate touch. He was the Rococo. He was, in touch terms, he was the equal of Fragonard, probably, and, and not that far behind Votto. But just between the ears, you know, what the hell was going on in him? I mean, he just pushed all the very worst buttons that people have. And um, it's true of his of his sexual pictures, and it's certainly true of his children. So let's not even waste time with him anymore. We're all agreed. Boucher is ghastly. Let's move on. Uh, because I think the, the next painter in the list, which is to say the second least worst painter of children in art, will surprise a few people because we've um, we've all gone, rather surprisingly, for Piero della Francesca. Who would have thought it, Bendy? Yes. He was, again, in your shortlist. And I do see what you mean. A lot of his infant Christ look eerily like Woody Harrelson with no hair um, in one of his sort of slightly violent films. If I'm being charitable, I suppose we have to consider that a lot of these pictures are in bad condition, have been badly retouched. So we, we may not be seeing everything that old Piero hoped us to see in his depictions of children. But um, I think generally looking at them, certainly the ones you sent me, I think you're probably right. Well, I've sent you the ones that there are, um, which is basically all his his mother and mother and children. And of course, there are some very, very bad Renaissance kids in art. We all know that. There's, I think there's even a, a special website devoted to it, terrible Renaissance babies. But in my eye, to my eyes, Piero is the very worst of them. So particularly that famous painting, the the Senegalia Madonna, you know, there's a this 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 figure who looks like a middle-aged wrestler but just pint-sized, you know, about, about a foot tall, sitting in the lap of the Madonna. And the Madonna's beautiful. You know, the angels are beautiful. Then you've got this sort of ghastly baby that has something of a Roman emperor about him. The thing is, I know why this is happening. And it's, it's happening for, for theological reasons, isn't it? Because Christ was meant to be both a man and a god, right? So if he's born, he's a man and he's a god. I mean, how the hell do you paint that? It's not a, the easiest of concepts to get across visually, is it? You can't just have a baby because that doesn't look like a god. And you can't just have a god because that doesn't look like a baby. So you need a hybrid of the two. And it's not perhaps surprising, therefore, that Renaissance artists struggling with those conflicting ideas came up with quite so many really, really, really bad babies. Plus the fact that they obviously hadn't looked at many children and didn't spend a lot of time with their wives looking after their babies in the way that more recent artists have done. So uh, it's a problem that's partly to do with the epoch, but that doesn't stop the fact that even in this world of bad kids, Piero just seems to be the worst. It's it's very strange, I think. Bad luck, Piero. You live in infamy in place two in the Wendy list. <laughs> However, no one could possibly accuse him of being the very worst painter of children in art because uh, there is someone who I think has quite confidently claimed that title. I think we're all in agreement about this one. There are many great mysteries in art, but one of the ones that puzzles me most is how anybody ever could have liked the art of Fernando Botero. He's everywhere. Every civic square in Spain has a sculpture by him. Every museum has a picture by him. He's terrible at everything he does, but he's especially bad, I think, at children. What do you think, Bendy? I entirely agree. And I... I wasn't really aware until you sent me the shortlist of, of just how uh, popular and va apparently valuable Patera's works are. I looked up his prices at auction. These things, they make millions of dollars and they're all absolutely ghastly. He absolutely makes millions of dollars, millions and millions of them. And he's quite an old bloke now, you know, so he's been doing it for decades, churning this stuff out. It's absolutely, it's everywhere. If you go to any Latin American country, um, there's Boteros everywhere. Um, 
I don't, under, I don't understand it. I, I quite like comic art. I believe that comedy should have a, a role in art. That's oh, one of the reasons I like Picasso. It's the reason why I like Hogarth, you know. But this yeah. stuff is just sick. I mean, the, the, the worst of these images here is a portrait of Jesus again, right? And he's a fat, lumpy kid with a robin on his wrist. A, a comic Jesus. It's just beyond me how art ever became like that. As far as I can see, everything Botero paints is a fat person. And that includes his children. I'm not sure I found any of these amusing in the way that sometimes a Beryl Cook um, picture is amusing. Um, but, uh, and, and looking at Botero pictures one after the other, it slightly reminded me of what they, what they teach my daughter at um, primary school, you know, to make them behave. Once is funny, twice is tiresome. And it seems extraordinary that he's got away with this for so long. And it, it, to me, it reflects an art world that's become um, obsessed with sort of recognizable brands, a bit like fashion. Uh, and we have we have sort of fallen into a world where we have the artistic attention span of, of a Donald Trump. And we can only sort of allow artists to do one thing. And, and some of them feel very happy to exploit that and just carry on turning them out. And I think Botero is at the top of this terrible list. Well, we're in agreement on that. Full, full agreement. It's funny, isn't it, how certain artists get popular? I just don't get it. Another one is Jack Vetriano. I was watching um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire the other day, and this one of the people came on who answering the questions, and she said, "Oh, I, you know, I actually got this." The question was about Jack Vetriano, and she got it right. And she was saying, "Oh, I love Jack Vetriano. He's the greatest artist ever." You know, how do these things happen? I think we're in the wrong world, Bendor. I think we just belong in a different dimension and this world isn't for us. Um, however, having said that, we're also very fortunate because we have magic powers and we can magic up anything we want to hang on our walls during this great period of isolation. And so coming up in a moment is that fun bit of the show where we get to choose whatever we want to look at for the weeks and months ahead because it's on the wall. On the wall. Here we go. It's on the wall. The fun bit of the show where we get to choose things for our imaginary museum. So, Bendor, this is always a bit where we have a fun. So, what have you got for us this week? Oh, I've gone big again. It's an enormous painting by an artist called Sir George Hayter, painted in 1833. The formal title is Moving the Address to the Crown on the Opening of the First Reformed Parliament in the House of Commons, February 1833. George Hayter, he's, he's not a name that falls off everyone's list of top British artists, but he's, he's one of those people I admire because he used his artistic talent to rise from, frankly, nothing to be court painter to Queen Victoria. He was a, a child prodigy. Um, he had rather a tough life. He had to run away at one point and join the Royal Navy. His first child was born when he was 18 and died in his arms. And yet he overcame all that just with the, the talent of his hand and his brush to become... Uh, quite a famous artist in his day. And this painting, I don't know if you remember Wildemar in the National Portrait Gallery, in the Regency Galleries. Um, this is an enormous painting which, which confronts you as you come to the end of the Regency Galleries. Um, and it shows the House of Commons packed full to the rafters with, with over 360 sitters. And they are passing um, the Reform Act, which was the first uh, major attempt to extend the vote in Britain. So uh, an important moment in our political history. And the reason I've gone for it, uh, my, my background actually, my PhD is in British political history. So I sort of, I get quite nerdy about these things. And I like looking at all the sitters and I like seeing the House of Commons, the old House of Commons before it burnt down and Pugin built that, that Gothic thing. And I think this, this is a sort of 
uh, it reflected the entrepreneurial spirit that British artists often had to have in the 19th century. Um, Hayter didn't get a commission to paint this picture. He just sort of did it off his own bat. And it, it took him 10 years and he did it really thoroughly. He got live sittings with 360 sitters uh, and he put them all in there. And it's not like one of those sort of um, overly static group portraits that you sometimes get. Um, this one is has, has the, an appropriate degree of tension and drama. It's all quite interesting. I have to say I have a, a personal connection to this picture because uh, my six times great grandpa Robert Grosvenor was a member of parliament in this parliament uh, and I'm pleased to say that he was on the right side of history because he voted to extend the franchise uh, he was a liberal and I used to look at this picture in the National Portrait Gallery and thinking wouldn't it be lovely to have the uh, the life sketch the ad vivum sketch of Robert Grosvenor my grandpa I wonder where it is because it certainly isn't in in my family my side of the Grosvenor family is very poor and we flogged off all our pictures many years ago but I had a little bit of lockdown luck, Waldi. I ping into my inbox, came an email from an art dealer I know called Luke Badalbai, and he had spotted a sleeper at auction a, a few weeks ago, uh, catalogued as English school portrait of a man, the estimate was 30 pounds. And here it was, the life study by hater of Robert Grosvenor, my great grandpa. And he snapped it up and he offered it to me for um, a very um, sensible profit, I think. I was delighted to give it to him. And so I, I have the picture now on my wall and I would like to reunite the picture with the finished original. Uh, the National Portrait Gallery is closing for three years. I'm sure they won't miss it. And uh, how about that? That's a fantastic story, Bendor. That's made me smile. That's a wonderful story. What a chance in a million, I would have thought. I mean, I'm looking at the picture now. I mean, there are so many faces in there. It would be so hard to actually pick one out. Which which one is your grandpa? Is he on the right or the left? Um, he's on the left-hand side in the corner, uh, second row up. <laughs> if you were looking at the key, he's number 141. And you were very delicate as well about the sensible profit that uh, your dealer friend's going to make. It's a fabulous picture. And of course, um, because it's the old House of Commons before the uh, the Pugin one, um, it's slightly different. The atmosphere is much the same. I mean, there's like row, rows and rows of seats with people filling them. But there are three big windows at the back. So there's actually light coming in and there's a, a sense of, sort of openness to it which is new, and the balconies are heaving. It, it looks slightly more fun, um, the actual uh, discussion that's going on. But uh, yeah, Hater's one of those people I well, freely admit I tend to walk past. Um, and this is exactly the kind of picture that, that is terrifying because if you don't really know what, what you're looking at it's just a, a load of a load of people and I, I i certainly respect any artist who can take on this many portraits and find a way to differentiate each of them and make each of them stand out so from that point of view uh, it's it's absolutely marvelous and of course it feels pertinent because of what's going on at the moment so terrific choice terrific choice and i'm really happy for you bendy really happy that you found your uh, your drawing so you're going to give it to the national portrait gallery is that what you said no way i'm keeping it thanks <laughs> rather sad story well, hater he he never found a buyer for the picture um and he put in 10 years of work and, and couldn't sell it eventually the government bought it when they founded the national portrait gallery and gave it to them 
all very lovely oh. well i'm sort of keeping with the isolation theme because um you know the prime minister the other day went started going on about obese people and how we've got to get the country thinner and i'm one of those unfortunates who has piled on the weight during the uh, during the lockdown it always happens to me if i'm sort of sitting there a lot i just get fatter and fatter i'm not like you a sort of lean mean art critical fighting machine you know i'm i'm, I'm polish I'm, I'm 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 bred to be picking potatoes in in arctic winters and yet here i am sitting and trying to be an art critic so yeah it always hits me anyway i've gone for a picture which i remember seeing very dramatically for the first time at the gamalda gallery in berlin where it really stood out um and it's by a, a baroque french baroque painter who basically i know nothing about apart from the fact he did this picture called charles millen or charles millen that's painted roughly in the 1640s and what it is is a fat bloke the great big fat bloke and it's a big picture sort of life-size standing on a some kind of balcony with two columns around him so the columns are kind of tall and thin but he and this is what's really interesting he is presenting his profile to you so not only is he fat but you get to see the absolute extent of his huge stomach and he's turned towards us with this slightly puzzled slightly difficult expression on his face and the contrast of the white marbly classical situation he's in with the columns and this black you know we all wear black if we're fat and this black outfit he's put on to try and make himself look a bit thinner has created this dramatic sort of black and white picture and i swear to you if you go round the gamalda gallery in berlin you know of course you look at the durers of course you look at the holbeins of course you you know you you, you look at the outdoorfers because they're great but when you see this picture you can't miss it it made me realize how few fat people there are in art, properly fat people. Um, and also, because he's, he's, he's anonymous, this guy, we don't know who it is. We just know he's a very fat bloke painted by Charles Millen. Um, and it just shows you that artists um, were very picky about who they painted or fat people were picky about being painted. But it's rare. It's very rare and it really stands out. So I present this to you as a kind of reminder of where some of us unfortunates are in the lockdown. There's a fat guy picture and um, I'd like to have it up there just in case it helps me try and lose a bit of weight. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm struggling to believe you because although I can only see from above your shoulders in this podcast, you'd look quite trim to me. I mean, perhaps I can explain to the to the listeners that you have had a you have had a DIY haircut and you're you're looking quite North Korean. Um, so perhaps perhaps the rest of you does look a little bit like Kim Jong Un, but I find it hard to believe. Um, certainly, I don't believe you are as large as the fellow in the painting, which is an extraordinary painting, and I have seen it. And what I find really extraordinary about it is that um, the way that the artist has has raised the sitter up, he's foreshortened him. So you're it's it's really emphasizing the size of the sitter, isn't it? There's no attempt to try and hide it, and you just wonder what happened between artist and sitter. Well, maybe the sitter didn't mind. Well, he must have been in on it, mustn't he? Because it's a grand painting. It's a big painting. But it's, it's true, though, isn't it? I mean, there are plump people in art and everybody goes on about Rubens and his fat women and that sort of thing. But basically, genuinely obese people, people of this kind of stature, people of a sort of waldy bent, you know, <laughs> we don't feature much in art, do we? We're, you, we're, we're, the, we're the forgotten few. Have you considered having your portrait painted? Perhaps you should add to this rare oeuvre in art history but go and get yourself painted now in in huge lockdown <laughs> but, size who would you choose 
Oh, well, it would have been Lucian Freud, wouldn't it, uh, in the old days? He, he's actually a great painter of fat people. He did that fantastic series, The Benefit Supervisor. They were brilliant. But I think I'd get Giacometti because um, that way I'm guaranteed <laughs> to come out thin, right? It's a great idea. He's dead. That's cheating. <laughs> anyway, enough of that stupidity. That's it just about for the podcast uh, today. Uh, but we're going to leave you with something a bit different. Um, uh, as some of you know, I, I am a member, a proud member of the Singing Art Critics, the world's oldest and indeed probably the world's only post-punk protest band of irate art critics. Now, we've been busy musically in the lockdown. We've written songs about it. So here's one of them, which I think is very topical. From me, it's Bye Bye. And from Bendy, it's Cheerio. Shut the tapes on a Monday The v it closed too The A-word it went on Tuesday And then the Barbican followed suit Yeah, 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 the Barbican followed suit The Whitechapel went on Wednesday Thursday the Serpentine When they locked down the British Museum And the National went online Yeah, 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 the National went online Where is all the art? The art world is falling apart What's the point of free? When the art world's on its knees